Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 6th of October with me in Welsh. A bumper episode for you this week. The Innovation Forum team have been in Amsterdam this week for this year's Future of Plastics and Packaging event. While I was there, I caught up with Nestle's Global Public Affairs Lead for Packaging and Sustainability, Jody Roussel. We talked about some of the trends in packaging and reflected on how the sector is shifting towards tougher mandatory compliance standards. And recently, I spoke with Bex Hall, Head of Consulting at SEDEX, about how food may be going through a revaluation process and the opportunities this presents. That's all to come. First, though, is our regular roundup of some sustainable business news, this week with B. Stevenson. Starbucks is taking substantial action to protect coffee's future in the face of climate change impacts, unveiling six resilient coffee seed varieties. With the daily U.S. consumption of 517 million cups and climate-related threats looming, Arabica coffee beans, which constitute 70% of global production, face threats like pests and diseases as well as extreme heat. Robusta, a thicker coffee bean, is generally more resilient to heat. Starbucks' climate-resilient Arabica seeds are resistant to coffee leaf rust, a fungus that thrives in warmer, wetter conditions. Tests have shown that these seeds generate a higher yield in a shorter period of time. The seeds are being distributed to farmers, who are then free to sell the resulting crop to other buyers. So far, around 3 million seeds have been distributed annually over the last five years to farms worldwide. Some experts have said that the innovation is critical for the future of coffee. The European Union has made a significant move to reduce the use of potent greenhouse gases in refrigeration and air conditioning systems, aligning with its broader efforts to curb CO2 emissions and safeguard the environment. Negotiators and lawmakers have reached an agreement to phase out hydrofluorocarbons entirely by 2050, recognising their detrimental impact on the planet's health. Spanish Climate Minister Teresa Rivera, who co-hosted an international climate and energy summit in Madrid last week with the aim of strengthening ambition ahead of COP28, emphasised the importance of this phase-out in the fight against climate change. The deal will progressively prohibit the sale of products containing these gases, with varying timelines for different items. For instance, a complete ban on fluorinated or F gases in split air conditioning and heat pumps is set for 2035. The law awaits formal approval from a majority of EU lawmakers and countries, which is a procedural step for pre-agreed deals. New research by Ember has analysed electricity data from 78 countries representing 92% of global electricity demand to reveal that global power sector emissions experienced minimal growth in the first half of 2023, with an increase of just 0.2% compared to the previous year. This encouraging development was driven by the expanding capacity of wind and solar power in electricity grids worldwide. However, the progress made in reducing emissions was dampened by a remarkable 8.5% decline in hydroelectric power output, largely attributed to droughts in China. During this period, wind and solar energy's combined share of global electricity supply rose to 14.2%, marking a significant increase from the 12.8% recorded in the first half of 2022. Had hydroelectric power generation remained stable, global power sector emissions could have seen a decline of 2.9%. New data released by RAP indicates that in 2022, the UK witnessed a significant increase in food redistribution efforts, with more than 400 million meals worth over £590 million prevented from going to waste. The data shows a 25% rise in food redistribution from 2021 as organisations received approximately 170,000 tonnes of surplus food, marking a year-on-year increase of 29,000 tonnes or 70 million meals. The retail sector has remained the largest source of redistributed surplus food at 41%, followed by manufacturers at around a third. The hospitality and food service sectors also experienced significant growth in surplus food redistribution, together accounting for 10% of the total. 
Charity has also played a crucial role in these efforts, outnumbering commercial counterparts by a 70 to 30 ratio. The positive trend is attributed to an increased refrigeration and freezing capacity, allowing a wider range of food to be redistributed. Since RAP began reporting on surplus food redistribution in 2015, over 595,000 tonnes of surplus food have been redirected from waste in the UK, emphasising the importance of continued collaboration to reduce food waste and its environmental impact. I was in Amsterdam this week at Innovation Forum's Future of Plastic and Packaging Conference and I spoke with Nestle's Jody Roussel. What are the key trends you're seeing in the packaging sector right now? Some of the trends we're looking at now are consumer preference, regulatory developments. Looking forward to a period now of a lot of change in the industry where we're moving from an era that's been characterized by voluntary commitments, voluntary corporate action like design and reporting, to now moving into a phase of um, tremendous transformation where we're expecting new regulation to shape the industry and we move from a voluntary space to really a mandatory compliance space. We've been talking a lot today about that very thing, the fact that it's becoming much more regulation. The regulation is almost catching up with best practice. Not least, of course, the Global Plastics Treaty. What are your hopes for the treaty? In terms of the rest of this year, certainly we, along with other members of the Business Coalition for the Global Plastics Treaty, are looking forward to the negotiations on the zero draft starting in November. But overall, you know, businesses respond to certainty. So one of the things that we're hoping for is that ultimately the treaty will deliver, require governments to implement basic regulation on the full life cycle of plastics. So that that way, voluntary best practices that exist today are no longer a ceiling, but rather they become a floor for all businesses to follow certain standards under future national laws and for all governments to have certain minimum standards that are regulated, harmonizing legislation effectively through the treaty as a mechanism. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, ultimately the goal of these global treaties is to really bring everybody forward and bring all the different bits of legislation that are enacted across the world, bring them all together. Something else we talked about today, and we've heard lots of interesting anecdotes around as they move towards a, a reuse, refill type model. Where's Nestle on that? We've done quite a bit of piloting, over 20 pilots in 12 countries, looking at both reuse systems and refill systems. What we've learned through those pilots is that today, reuse is not terribly convenient for consumers. It demands extra effort. And we've recognized that there are certain enabling conditions that will be really helpful to put in place to enable industry at scale to support reuse and refill. Now, some of these enabling conditions that governments can put in place include mandates that look at category by category transitions to reuse. Not putting general requirements in place for reuse, but rather to say a specific product category needs to move. Another enabling condition certainly is a clear timeline, retro-planned, to implement a shift in an industry from predominantly single-use packaging to a mix where both reusable packaging or refill packaging can also be on the market at the same time as single-use. We also need to look at competition laws and recognizing some standards like the ones that have been developed by PR3 for washing systems, sanitizing, collection points, digital communications, all for reusable or refillable packaging. And what are the barriers to action then? Today, this is largely about voluntary corporate programs. 
One of the barriers certainly is in the gray area around competition law and industry collaboration. Today, collaboration can only be facilitated through industry associations, and if we look to drive the lowest cost and highest performing system in the future, this may be facilitated through pool packaging systems. Pool packaging systems require collaboration, so we need to take a new look at how competition laws are enabling or hindering such cross-industry engagement. I think another challenge is today it's all about voluntary action. If we actually have a regulatory playing field that's mandating reuse and refill as part of promoting a circular economy mindset instead of the linear model of the present, regulation is going to enable all players to have certainty and businesses react well to certainty. It does seem that this is a, an area where good legislation can really play a really important and central job. We spoke last year, here we are talking again. What do you think we'll be talking about in 12 months time? If I have the privilege to talk to you in 12 months time, I think we'll probably be looking at where the treaty is. How close are we actually to negotiations being complete? Today we have a year and a half left. We'll also be next year, probably 12 months after the announcement of the PPWR package. So we'll also see what is that doing in Europe. We'll also have new information about other governments that are implementing cutting edge regulation like the Canadians, who have a number of innovative proposals on the table. So I think from a regulatory perspective, we expect a lot to change in a year. The speed of change is definitely increasing. From a packaging innovation perspective, there are many companies working together with the Consumer Goods Forum, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, on reuse and refill, exploring what are possible systems for the scale-up of reuse and refill. So I think we'll be a lot further along in that discussion about what are enabling conditions, how can government as well as business and associations help to enable a new ecosystem and where are the opportunities for investment to unlock that ecosystem? Well, let's make sure we do talk again in 12 months' time. I look yeah. forward to it. To yourself from Nestle, thanks very much. Thank you, Ian. A few days ago, I spoke with Sidex's Head of Consulting, Bex Hall. We discussed food costs and the challenges ensuring that they are shared across value chains equitably. So we're going to be talking about food costs and how they can be most equitably be spread across value chains. Bex, do you think that consumers have become addicted to cheap food? Yes, I think there's a lot of evidence and research that suggests that that might be the case, particularly in more developed economies such as the UK, Europe and the United States. As everyone is probably aware, over the last couple of years, we've seen a huge increase in the cost of food, whether that be alongside cost of living and inflation or whether it's food in particular, which has really shaken a lot of people and therefore obviously indicates that the historic reliance and commonality with cheaper food is changing. Whether it's an addiction, I guess, is questionable in terms of, is it something that people really absolutely cannot part with and are unwilling to turn to slightly more perhaps expensive or more higher value sources of food, I think is something we're going to really explore in the next few months, years and today in our discussion. Has food become undervalued, do you think then? I think that is probably largely the case, particularly when you look at, again, some of these more developed economies, particularly I think when we talk about the United States, where a lot of food is heavily, heavily subsidized for consumers. The idea that food is incredibly accessible and it's an easy thing to be able to waste as well, I think demonstrates that it perhaps is undervalued. There's some particularly shocking statistics that come out from um, various different research bodies that I think perhaps highlight this. Because if something typically is, is highly valued by people, it therefore doesn't tend to be wasted. It doesn't tend to be overpurchased or thrown away without thought at the end. But when you look at the statistics on food waste, 
particularly let's look at this one here. So for the United States, there's estimates that it's something like 119 billion pounds of food is wasted every single year, which equates to about 130 billion meals. That's a shocking amount of waste. And if we turn to somewhere like the United Kingdom, those numbers are are also quite disappointing, to be honest. It's around 9.5 million tons of food each year. So there is a huge amount of waste there, which I think probably indicates that food is quite undervalued by consumers. I think what's really interesting, though, is when you balance that off against how many people are actually living in food poverty or food insecurity, it demonstrates that the system isn't right. The system that has perhaps led to all that food being so cheap doesn't necessarily actually create access and equality to everybody. So when we look at the US figures, for instance, you've got that 130 billion meals of waste each year, but there's around 34 million people who are described as food insecure, which is about 11% of the population at this point in time. And similarly, when you look at the United Kingdom, that nine and a half million tonnes per year that's wasted, there's around 8.4 million people currently in food poverty. There really is a significant imbalance there. And just to clarify, the, the pounds you mentioned for the US, it's pounds of weight, not pounds sterling of value. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What are the consequences for different supply chain actors from this challenging valuation of food? There's quite a few different ones. Something that many people don't necessarily realise is also how many actors are in the supply chain getting food to us every day. Historically, people might think, okay, well, let's take some bread or for instance, it's, it's the wheat's grown, it's turned into bread and I get it from the shop. When you actually expand that and work in the supply chain industry, as as we at SEDEX do with many of the global retailers and food producers, there are dozens more stages to that in terms of the different ingredients that come in, the different actors within that chain, from logistics, delivery, bakers, farmers, even the people who perhaps clean the factory where the bread is baked. There's, There's a huge amount of people that are involved in that. So when you do look at the cheaper cost of food, you have to think, well, if we're factoring in all of those different actors within that supply chain, what remuneration are they getting as those costs go down and down? But what we see is the cost of the inputs into that process. So let's say fuel to power the tractors that are harvesting the wheat those prices are going up. And it really results in this squeeze, if you like, somewhere in the middle that can put workers in that supply chain at risk. What extent do you think that consumers and the food sector more generally needs to think about changing the way they value food? I think a slightly more holistic approach in terms of the food sector will perhaps leave customers out just for now. When we look at the sector in itself and some of those actors that we've talked about there, your food distributors, your farmers, your production and manufacturing facilities. I think it's about really understanding that there is a difference between the cost in terms of what are you charging people for this? What's your revenue? What's your income? and your outgoings, and also the actual value that's in that situation. That true cost of driving down the price of something, how does that affect your workers? What impact does that potentially have on the environment as well? If you're starting to look at reducing some of the inputs into that process, what is the actual impact of that there? So in terms of trying to actually value that food, I think it's key to really consider, again, those actors and that wide range of inputs and outputs that you've got going on there. And a huge part of that, I think, is also around education, which is where I think the consumers come in. 
you might look at your again your bread on your shelf whatever it might be and think oh that's nice but how often do we actually think about where did that come from that wheat could have been planted 18 months ago if not longer it's really a phenomenal thing but with the way that many of us live these days things have been so commoditized that we're quite detached from that actual process there particularly when food is is shipped or imported and exported internationally. So the education of consumers in terms of what actually goes in to the food that you are eating and what you're seeing on your shelves or in your shops each day, I think is very helpful to really support with that. And then again, raising some awareness around, okay, yes, maybe this does cost a bit more, but why? Without naming specific brands, there's some really good examples of that within many, many countries in the world where you perhaps might pay a bit of a premium for a product, but that's because you do it with the understanding that what you're paying for that is contributing towards the cost of better working conditions, better animal welfare, better environmental sustainability and stewardship. I think it is quite interesting to consider it from that way. Although I suppose we also do need to consider the counterbalance, which I think you're probably going to come to, Ian, is around that cost for many people is a luxury, that additional cost and actually the accessibility to food that is at the lower end of the price spectrum is still really essential for millions of people. A lot of brands you alluded to there are now trying to educate consumers around where things come from. It does feel that consumers are responding a bit. To what extent do you think consumers are really going to grapple with this? Or generally do you think consumers basically don't really care and they just want to know that the product on the shelf is cheap and tasty essentially? Without wanting to fall into a stereotype, I think unfortunately, especially as the cost of living is going up almost everywhere at this point in time and for many, many people, price speaks often far more loudly than other qualities and other sort of criteria, I think. That said, I think something that, you know, I'm not an expert in sort of consumer research, but we have looked into this a bit. It's very, very interesting to see where price perhaps isn't the deciding point. And it's actually who that customer is, perhaps generationally in terms of age or in terms of where they live. You know, again, a huge amount of research that shows that perhaps younger consumers like sort of late millennials, Gen Z, etc., who are now coming into the workforce, having an income are making very conscious choices to purchase more sustainable goods or those things that maybe do have a slightly higher price tag, but they demonstrate the values that they might have. And I think that's that's really interesting and something that businesses can certainly use to their advantage in terms of reaching those sustainability goals. If you're make, trying to make a choice between, can I feed my entire family on this slightly cheaper food product this week, or can I buy something that perhaps has those greater credentials but is a lot more expensive and therefore we go without certain things I'm not sure many people would take that latter choice I suppose something to consider there again which is why I don't want to sound like a stereotype is that often sustainable food or food with sustainable credentials is pitted against cheap food or lower value food because there's an assumption that they're mutually exclusive if you're being sustainable it can't be affordable or if it's affordable it can't be sustainable and again I think we're definitely seeing with shifts in business models particularly what we're seeing around turn to more localized food local shopping and local distribution that those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive anymore. Given that every challenge presents an opportunity, if the era of unrealistically cheap food is over, what are the opportunities that this might present? If we take it from the perspective, right, it's over the rising costs of this, the costs within the supply chain, the value chain, whatever it may be, are inevitable and we really have to do something about it. It's often the place where innovation is born and it comes from that we, you know, we're faced with a problem that we don't necessarily like or that we haven't seen before. 
Um, and we need to work our way out of that using different and more innovative means. So there's a huge amount um, going on at the moment, for instance, in terms of regenerative agriculture um, and a variety of other kind of farming techniques that whilst the perhaps initial capex on that for businesses is quite high in the long run, it's shown that actually the innovation, the technology, the research there is saving money and it is helping to be more sustainable, both in terms of the production of goods, but also in terms of the people in the system, the environment involved. So I think that's a big opportunity there to really innovate. I think another alternative or another opportunity when you consider the actors in the supply chain, which we talked about earlier, is that this is potentially a really good opportunity for organisations to stop and evaluate where that money is and where that cost is going. Is this an opportunity actually that we say, you know what, we've actually got these millions of people in food insecurity because they're not earning that much. Why is that? And particularly when it's actually that a lot of those people might be involved in the very food supply chains we're talking about. It's a real opportunity to understand, well, what are you paying the your workers? What are you paying your contractors? What are you paying your farmers? And is this an opportunity that where the, the, the costs are rising, that they can perhaps be more equitably distributed um, amongst the actors in that supply chain as well? Often when we're talking about food value chains, it's the growing communities, the farmers that bear the brunt of the impacts of change, bear the costs a lot of the time. What needs to be in place, do you think, to ensure that growers can benefit if we're moving towards a higher price structure? Similarly to what you just mentioned, I think it's it's an opportunity for different actors and groups within the value chain to take stock of what is currently going on and what currently isn't working. There's a lot of like politics, I suppose, and policies that need to go into things like this. I'm sure people are familiar with things like the Common Agricultural Policy in the EU and then a variety of subsidies that exist within North America. I'm not here to make a political statement or say whether they're wrong, they're right, the pros and the cons. But I think that, that there is something that perhaps unions or industry bodies and like slightly more collective groups have got a real opportunity there to step in um, and make the most of the situation to ensure that the growers do come out of this winning and don't find themselves on the negative end of, of what we're seeing in terms of pricing. And I suppose from a business perspective, the big push here, which we're also seeing arguably in the changes of legislation on supply chain due diligence, on impact assessment, on ESG and non-financial reporting, is for businesses to use this as an opportunity to do impact assessments and materiality assessments, look at your supply chain, look at the traceability and transparency of your products, and put things in place there to ensure, as you say, that those growers, regardless of what tier of the supply chain they're at, are actually benefiting and they're being paid correctly, they're receiving the right treatment, remuneration, compensation, and so forth. We talked about this a little bit earlier, and you produced some extraordinary statistics around the amount of food waste in the, in the US and the UK. To what extent is the solution to the food cost and food supply chain generally just simply getting in on top of that waste, cutting food waste across supply chains? It's so interesting and it's so complicated. And again, I've spent a bit of time trying to look into where that food waste comes from. There's a few things to consider there. One thing I think is it's society, it's culture, it's cultural behaviour that in certain countries you go to the restaurant, you order the biggest meal you can, and if you can't finish it, it's fine, it goes in the bin. Not the case for everybody, but it's kind of cultural. So there's the individual consumer or household waste there is something to consider. The other area that a huge amount of food waste comes from is the supply chain, um, whether it's in production or whether it's in the transportation and logistics of actually moving that food around. In terms of how much cutting that down is a solution, I think there's a huge amount of potential there, actually. 
we'll perhaps leave the consumers and the education part aside because we've talked about that a little bit already and, and is a bit out of my wheelhouse. But when we talk about the supply chain perspective, something that probably is quite significant is organizations really looking again at what that supply chain looks like, the transparency and the traceability of it, and understanding whether there are things that can be done to improve the movement of food throughout the supply chain, which would therefore, you kind of logically with a few things in place, help extend things like the shelf life of food. So that might be, as mentioned earlier, having things like more decentralized or localized distribution centers, or having slightly more localized supply chains so rather than having something flown or shipped from thousands of miles away which obviously therefore has an impact on how long that product is viable you actually can try and focus on having that in a more localized way which then extends that time frame and makes it slightly less likely that it will become wasteful and then related to that I think there's also a lot of research that shows there's new technologies and new techniques coming in around how to actually store and protect food as well that are more sustainable than they had been previously. So when we look at things like different refrigeration mechanisms, which is obviously essential for a lot of different food and beverage types. When we look at things like having those with more sustainable energy sources or slightly upgraded technology, that doesn't become a prohibitive cost anymore so that goods can be refrigerated for longer and again, be less likely to become wasteful. I think there's a huge amount of opportunity there um, in terms of actually cutting that food waste down. And certainly from the perspective of trying to tackle food inequality, I think that's a huge opportunity Whether it would have a significant impact on the cost of food, though, I'm not sure. I have to come back to you on that one. Looking forward, do you think that long-term sustainable food supply systems really just require more realistic pricing? And that's just kind of the fundamental fact. I think they have to. What that realistic pricing is, I think, is very contextual to the product, the country, the location, the economic system in which it exists. But yeah, I think it has to what's being referred to as sort of the era of cheap food that we've seen recently and you know whether that's over or not whilst people seem to look at the era of cheap food as a really positive thing and something that we should absolutely struggle to continue to have we have also seen the negative impacts of that of this inequality in terms of huge amounts of waste in terms of huge amounts of people that whilst the food is cheap it's still not accessible to people necessarily and then also a lot of environmental damage um, potentially throughout this system and finally also on as we've said the actors in the supply chain unfortunately you know modern slavery which is obviously an extreme situation but also similarly linked red flag behaviors like late payment of wages not being paid minimum wage piecemeal wage paying which is very common in the agricultural industry they're all huge problems that have existed throughout this era they're arguably things that we don't want to return to they're things we want to build from and learn from and improve in the future and yeah i think in order to do those different things we do require slightly more realistic prices that do take those factors into consideration to make sure that we don't struggle to pay the workers in the supply chain and and to compensate for the actual real-life cost of managing food a bit more sustainably. It's certainly an area of significant change, fast-moving at the moment as well. I'm interested to see how things do pan out. But thanks very much indeed for all those predictions. Bex Hall from SEDEX. Thanks, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. We'll be posting some more content from the Amsterdam Plastics and Packaging event over the coming weeks, so do look out for that. We'll be back with the Monday Briefing next week and the podcast on Thursday. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.